The Buddha speaks often about the potential radiance of each of our minds. The potentiality of our minds and hearts to discover and abide in very profound depths of calm, of luminosity, of peace, of serenity. He very much says that the, the seeds of this mind, the seeds of this heart, lives within each of us. I think one of the great, part of the great genius of the Buddha was that he very much built his teaching and talked about the sense of possibility, but built his teaching upon what we have already glimpsed in our lives. And we have all had glimpses of stillness, glimpses of brightness, glimpses of joy, glimpses of connectedness. And no, sometimes they feel very elusive. And sometimes they feel quite accidental. And we don't even know how they happened. And yet those glimpses, I think, are often what bring many of us to the meditative path. And I think those glimpses are also what allows many of us to really respond to the teaching of the Buddha, when he speaks about the sense of possibility. Because there is, even the smallest little glimpse provides a context for us in our own experience. Yet when we come to a situation like this, when we do sit down on a cushion and go on a walking path and be close to our minds, be close to our hearts, you know, hour to hour, moment to moment, day to day, I think we do get an appreciation, really, for the size of the cloth. In a way, almost the challenge of the journey of awakening. I think it's very important not to be disheartened by that growing awareness. You know, there is, seems so far away, you know, seems so impossible, seems so challenging at times. Not to be disheartened by that, but to know that this is actually the nature of the journey. This is the nature of the path of awakening. Very much when the Buddha speaks about the meditative path, he uses the word bhavana in Pali, which is to cultivate, to bring into being, to nurture And even more importantly, to be aware of what we are cultivating moment to moment. Because in every moment, something is coming into being or being brought into being. It's the first step of this path of waking up, is actually knowing our minds, knowing our hearts, knowing what is coming into being without blame, without elaboration, without condemnation, but a simple, kind, curious knowing. But we realize that we're, we're moving from these moments where calm or peace or serenity seems like accidents we bump into every now and again if we're fortunate, 
that the whole movement of the journey is to develop a way of being where our mind and heart is actually saturated with, pervaded with calm, with wakefulness, with serenity, with investigation. So it is why the path is often described as being a a movement from applied attention to sustained attention. So we can see that it's very important for us here in our practice to be intentional. To be intentional. To have an intentional attentiveness. That we really are not, it's not particularly satisfying only to feel that calm is an accident, (laughs) or that serenity is an accident. It is an intention. It is an intention. If you you look within the Satipatthana Sutta, the teaching on the development of mindfulness and liberation, it's very clear how much that intentionality lives within it. It says, breathing in, I calm the mind. Breathing out, I calm the mind. Breathing in, I calm the body. Breathing out, I calm the body. It's a very clear sense of intentionality, of direction within the practice. I think without that sense of intentionality, what we're left with is either just a technique or we're left with the other extreme of of a kind of roaming spaciness where you know, whatever happens, happens, but without necessarily a sense of direction. But bearing in mind how much the Buddha really emphasized this sense of direction, that's why we call it a path. You know, that this sense of direction begins with an awareness of discontent, an awareness of what is unsatisfactory, an awareness of what is confusing. And the very direction of the path is to liberate the heart, to liberate the mind. So that is a journey. So we begin always in our practice with a sense of intentionality. And this is something that is renewed again and again and again. Because we should never, ever underestimate our capacity for forgetfulness. You know, we should never underestimate our capacity to be unmindful, to be heedless. Hmm? So intentionality is not just something you had when you signed up for the retreat for your retreat whenever that was. Intentionality is something that is renewed in every moment of heedlessness, every moment of forgetfulness. What is this in the service of? What is this sitting, this walking dedicated to? Essentially, what am I doing here? Moment to moment. So that intentionality is what precedes um, and is precedes waking up. It precedes attentiveness. It's the forerunner of all mindfulness. And we see how often we, we begin with a, an intention, you know, to calm, to be steady, to see, and then it's it just gets hijacked, doesn't it? It just gets hijacked. It, It gets hijacked by psychological habits of fantasy, of daydreaming, of being lost in story and narrative. And essentially often what we see in our practice is that the habits of our mind, through long practice and the development of a great deal of expertise, 
that the psychological habits of our mind and heart initially seem to hold more power than our intention. That's just the reality. You know, it's not a judgment, it's not a blame, it's simply the actuality we deal with. You know, we've had perhaps a lifetime of practicing clinging and grasping and forgetfulness and being lost, and we may have had, you know, 10 years of learning to practice being awake. So it's just to see that, you know, our psychological habits are actually living and coexisting with our intentions not to be caught in the habits. Now, there's no doubt there's a little bit of tension in that, you know, and I I wouldn't like to say it in any other way. But it's not a negative tension. A negative tension is when we set one up against the other and we, you know, we, we get into the habit of blaming or being disheartened or being disappointed, being disappointment. But that's something that we're doing with that tension rather than just acknowledging that that tension exists. It's not a negative tension. It actually can be quite a creative tension. Hmm? It can be a tension that actually enables us and makes us more curious about these moments of heedlessness, more curious about the moments of forgetfulness. What's actually going on there? You know, how how are we kind of walking down pathways all too familiar to us? How can we respond to those moments? If if it's a negative tension, we become very blaming and very judgmental. If it is a creative tension, then we look at actually how do we respond to heedlessness? We renew intentionality, renew dedication, renew commitment, renew our capacity to begin again. We bring kindness, we bring acceptance, we bring patience, we bring forgiveness and generosity. The reality is that it is in this tension between what kind of contracts the mind and what liberates the mind, it's in that tension that we learn some of the most important and transforming lessons of the practice and of our lives. So it is embracing that that tension exists. We come back. And with practice, with practice, what I think most of us probably see in our lives that the intentions actually hold more power than the habits. That the intentions begin to hold more power than the habits. Why? Because the intention to be awake, to be present, these are the intentions that bring joy. The realization of those intentions is what brings joy, is what brings happiness, is what brings peace, is what brings calm. And they begin to grow far more inspiring and motivating than the results and expressions of the habits. This patience, this perseverance, these are all awakening factors. And with practice, we do see the ability, the growing ability to sustain intention and attention. It might be with mindfulness of breathing, it might be with metta, it might be with mindfulness of the body. But what you begin to see is that the effortless of effort level starts to feel less demanding, more easeful, more naturalized. Now, I would really just want to caution that this is not necessarily progressive or linear. 
Because we can have, you know, just an amazing day of intentionality and wakefulness and happiness and peace. And, you know, the, you, you see how the thought comes, you know, finally I've got it, you know, I figured it out, you know, I really pinned it down here, you know. And we wake up the next morning, it's a total day of disaster, you know. And it's just acknowledging that ebb and flow and that rhythm and, and, and holding the big picture, Holding the big picture, holding the long view, not being caught in the particulars of a single sitting or a single walking or a single day or a single week, not being caught in the particulars of that. Knowing that easefulness can turn into a day where much more effort is required and it would be deluding ourselves. To think that, oh, you know, I, I'm still easeful. We're really, you know, we're fraught with kind of, you know, tension and stress and struggle. And we're still trying to convince ourselves we were, we're easeful because we were easeful yesterday. That's not the reality. But we are easeful with the moments. Uh, the moments where that effortlessness seems to drop or fade. We're easeful with the moments when the peace suddenly seems a distant memory or the calm seems a distant memory. We're learning to be easeful with. And so much remembering that this is a kind of, you know, one of the aspects of mindfulness. It is the unconditional embracing of all things. The unconditional embracing of all things. The easefulness with all things. What we see when you look at the Satipatthana Sutta, not just in this discourse, but in many discourses of, discourses of the Buddha, he's actually talking about this tension in waking up. And and if you look in the Satipatthana Sutta, certainly you know talks about the encounter with mental states, with moods, with emotional states that are very difficult and at times seem intractable and at times seem very sticky. And if you go to the fourth foundation of mindfulness, where the Buddha's really describing the landscape of the path, he so speaks about this tension quite specifically. Because he says, you know, here are really the mental states and the factors that really veil our capacity to see clearly. And here are the factors that dispel those veils, that allow us to see through the veils. And when he talks about this, he says, you know, here, well, what are the factors that really, really, really cloud and veil the radiance of our minds? They're very very familiar to us. Sensual desire, aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry and doubt. This is kind of like the, 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 the nut within the shell, you know. This is really what, it's really what this journey is about, is learning to see through and dispel what veils our capacities to see clearly. And he says, coexisting with these these more difficult and sticky states of mind, there are the qualities that we cultivate of joy, of calm, of equanimity, of concentration, of investigation, of energy, that these are actually the awakening factors. These are the factors that awaken the moment and actually liberate the moment from the veils. 
The Buddha never just said, oh, yeah, be aware of the difficult mental states, you know, and just kind of hang out there, you know, just leave you hanging in this sort of, you know, increasing intimacy with difficult mental states. He actually said, you know, actually there's a way, there is a way that we practice with these. And it's about what we cultivate in the midst of the difficult. You know, we cultivate energy, we cultivate equanimity, calm, concentration, investigation, all of this, and joy. We cultivate this within the difficult. Now, too often I see in practice that people create very, very unhelpful attitudes or even dismissive attitudes to what we call the hindrances or the veiling factors. You know, Sometimes uh, even the more experience you have in meditation, the more unhelpful your attitudes can become. That's amazing. You know, because there can be the sense of, ah, oh, you know, I know this stuff, you know. Been there, done that, done sloth and torpor. You know, I know sloth and torpor. You know, I know restlessness and worry. You know, I just get over it. You know, I wait it out. Or maybe I just go to sleep and wake up tomorrow and it won't be here. We tend to see them as sort of meditative symptoms in the beginning of retreats. The Buddha described these mental states as anything but that. It described these mental states as being the root of all of our psychological and emotional storms and distress. So he took them really seriously. Really seriously. And in many ways, you know, in the stages of awakening, it is the falling away of many of these difficult mental states. And it's really actually only the Arahant who's fully free. You know, of all of these sticky mental states. So that's actually very heartening and very encouraging. But certainly to steer away from any dismissiveness of, you know, I just know this, I'll get over it. This is actually the practice. They are deeply embedded mental states and habits to be understood. The veiling factors are what suffocate and deny an awakening. So... It's also very important to envision a place in our practice and a time in our hearts and minds when these difficult mental states simply do not arise. It's important to envision that, that they simply do not arise. And they don't arise, you know, that their non-arising is not because we've got over them, It is because we have changed the shape of the mind or the mind shape has been changed through the practice. And so it is no longer, and through investigation, so it is no longer so vulnerable. The Buddha very much used the simile of looking at your reflection in a pool of water. Sensual desire is trying to see your reflection in water that is colored with dye. Aversion is like trying to see yourself in water that's been heated to a boil. Sloth and torpor is like trying to see your reflection in a pool of water that is covered with weeds and algae. And restlessness and worry is like trying to see yourself in water that is agitated and stirred by strong winds. And the presence of doubt is like trying to see your face in a pond of water that is dark and muddy. I think you can probably relate to this simile in your own experience. 
And the difficulty, of course, or even the greater difficulty, is many of these mental states really interact with one another. So sloth and torpor can interact, for example, with aversion. You know, I really don't like what is happening. I hate what is happening. I have to get over it. You have to fix it. You know, you can see how restlessness and worry starts to interact with craving. You know, how am I going to fix things? How am I going to control? How am I going to get what I need? You know, how am I going to make things, make my experience the experience I want to have? You can see how sensual desire can interact with doubt, you know. I can go through my day prowling through the sense doors looking for, you know, ever more lovely sights, sounds and experiences. And guess what? At the end of the day, I'm still unhappy. Oh, doubt. What am I doing wrong? It didn't work. So the Buddha used other similes to describe what it is like to be free of these mental states. He says, to be free of sensual craving is like being free from debt. To be free from aversion is like recovering from an illness. To be free from sloth and torpor is like being released from prison. And to be free from restlessness and worry, he likened to being free from slavery. And, and the freedom from doubt the Buddha likened to crossing a dangerous desert and reaching a place of safety. I think when we look at these kind of sticky mental states that most of us really do encounter, at least sometimes in our practice and in our lives, it's very important to understand when the Buddha talked about these five difficult mental states or veils, he talked about them as being the five manifestations of craving, ill will, and delusion. Just the ways that craving, ill will, and delusion manifest themselves and express themselves in our practice and in our life. So if we really see that, we see actually working with these difficult mental states is actually working with the Four Noble Truths. It's working with the cause, it's practicing with to understand actually the causes of suffering and the energy that makes the cycles of suffering repeat themselves over and over again. So in many ways, each time, each time we can be skillful with the hindrance factors, if you call them that, we are learning to be skillful with the causes of suffering. In a sense, we're practicing both, uh, you know, an awareness that there, where there is unsatisfactoriness, an awareness of the causes of suffering. We're aware, uh, practicing with liberating the moment from suffering, and we're practicing with the fourth noble truth of learning to find the ways to liberate the mind and the heart moment to moment. I want to look a little bit at what is this business about sensual craving, you know, because it's not a denial of the lovely. And in fact, an appreciation of the lovely is a great ally in our practice. You know, if you're in the midst of a contracted mind state, to be able to step outside, you know, to look at the sky, to look at the changing colors in the trees, you know, to have a sense of space, to be able to taste the lovely, it gladdens the mind. Hmm? 
It gladdens the mind. It brings a sense of spaciousness. It restores a sense of, of balance and appreciation. So much an important part of this practice. So the Buddha didn't ever say, you know, that the, the wise response to sensual craving is just to pursue as much unpleasant as you can. He never said that because sensual craving is something of a different order than sensual appreciation. Hmm? Something of a completely different order. Because sensual craving is the craving, the appetite that cannot be answered. The appetite that cannot be answered. The, the, often the, the example for me that often comes to mind because I, I am in retreat centers a lot is you know how sometimes you can stand in front of the notice board you know, for these very long stretches of time you know, just kind of gazing. I, I see this happen a lot. Just gazing as if I gaze long enough like something's going to happen or something's going to appear. It's a kind of appetite. You know, uh, just a sense of, of, you know, kind of discontent, of insufficiency. And, you know, how, how can that be filled, you know? How can that be filled? Maybe it's just find, if I look long enough, <laughs> something's really going to fill ants without looking. Because it's just the appetite that cannot be answered. It's an appetite that cannot be answered that can, of course, spread through so much of our lives, you know, the craving for meditative experience, the craving for more love than we have, you know, for more intimacy than we have, the, the craving to be someone that we're not. I mean, it's so subtle, this craving for sensual pleasure. It's not just of the body, it's also of the mind. And it's the appetite that cannot be be, be answered. We need to be so mindful of this because it, the power, you know, the appetite of sensual craving, of course, always disconnects us from the way things are and inevitably perpetuates discontent. You know, we become like a hungry ghost, you know, prowling, prowling the world, and it's feeding a sense of insufficiency. You know, and the whole of this teaching is rooted in understanding the sufficiency that lives within our own hearts and minds. Acknowledging the sufficiency of this moment. Acknowledging that there is always enough in this moment for compassion, for peace, for contentment, for ease. It is so, stepping out of this kind of prowling is coming back, reminding ourselves, no matter how hidden it may feel, of the sufficiency or the freedom of our own hearts. There's a lot of narrative in sensual craving, a lot of story. You know, I need this. When I have this, then I'll be happy, you know. When I, you know, that second plate of food, then that'll really be enough and tomorrow will be a better day. It, there's a lot of sto- story in it. Calm, the cultivation of calm, the cultivation of joy, are very much the antidotes to those feelings of insufficiency. Cultivation of contentment, very much the antidotes to feelings of insufficiency. 
ill will, aversion. Well, we all have moments of them, don't we? Impatience, frustration, discontent, you know, not liking, irritability, frustration, the whole spectrum of ill will and aversion with others, with events, with situations, and certainly with ourselves. The level of kind of the, the, the story of the you know, the aversive-laden thinking that we call the inner judge, you know, that seems to be well-practiced. And again, it places unhappiness, you know, outwardly often, or it places unhappiness, you know, in imperfection. It's because I'm imperfect. But it's so important to see aversion is always dividing, always separating, Again, it is always kind of, how much does it veil those seeds of radiance, the potentiality for radiance within our own hearts and minds? Aversion is like constantly insulting those seeds. (laughs) You know, I'm like this, I'm like that, I'm like this, I'm not good enough. It's kind of insulting or denying that potentiality of our own hearts and minds. And there's a big story, a big narrative story, always within aversion, have you noticed? I mean, aversion is like the fuel for this ever-expanding story about, you know, what is wrong with me, what is wrong with the world, what is wrong with other people. It goes on and on. We need to acknowledge it. We need to learn how to meet ill will with kindness. We need to learn how to meet ill will with investigation, with understanding, with calmness. It doesn't, ill will doesn't go away through more ill will because we don't like it. We need to acknowledge the suffering of our ill will. Not that it's anybody's fault, but the simple reality of the suffering of ill will. And because it's always that awareness of suffering that is the beginning of a path, isn't it? Then how can I meet this which is suffering? How can I meet this which causes so much schism and division? And and to be aware, you know, not to wait for the big, big moments of aversion attacks, you know. The little moments in the day, you know, where the mind begins to, you know, complain and reject and, and, and divide and separate. These moments are so important because this is part of the path. This is part of the journey of awakening. Sloth and torpor. Well, sometimes there's honest tiredness, isn't there? You know, sometimes we arrive on a retreat, you know, we're overstretched, we're overextended, there's an honest tiredness. There's a whole other level of sloth and torpor that I'm not going to call dishonest tiredness. But it's more a numbness. It's more a numbness. It's a way of numbing ourselves. It's, sometimes it's a way of numbing so that we don't, are not in contact with areas in ourselves that might be painful or might be difficult. When there's honest tiredness, you know, we can rest a little, we can start to feel the energy arise. But when you look really at what we're doing here, you know, we're not running marathons, are we? Basically, we sit around, you know, once in a blue moon, we get out, we have a little toddle around, and then we sit around some more. I mean, it's actually one of the most restful things we could ever be doing in our lives, one of the most renewing things we could ever be doing in our lives. And yet, sloth and torpor certainly comes to visit, doesn't it? And I encourage you, be ruthless. 
be ruthless. Don't not not in a negative way, you know, not in a, a, a sort of harsh way, but be ruthless, please, you know. I mean I mean just withdraw your consent. Withdraw your consent from this mental state. It absolutely goes nowhere except to more sloth and torpor and eventually to a very deep sense of being disheartened. Being aware how much sloth and torpor is one of the building blocks of doubt. Can't do it. You know, impossible. Be a little bit ruthless, you know. Not, not you know. <laughs> but there are times, you know, when it, it, it's really, we, we just withdraw consent, you know. We, we don't sit sleeping. We stand. We walk more. We raise the energy. Because energy actually is, curiously, sloth and torpor builds on itself, but so does energy. Energy builds on itself. And that doesn't mean like racing around, you know, like a mad person, you know, running up and down the lanes, you know, in order to raise energy. But, you know, a little bit, a little bit decisive and resolve. Resolve is a good thing. You know, there is, although we talk a lot about the gentleness and the kindness of this practice, quite frankly, there's place for a little muscle sometimes too. And a little resolve is a good thing. It, it, it manifests clear intention. It manifests what we're dedicated to. It manifests what we're, our practice is in the service of. Interestingly, you know, for me, salt and torpor is, is the only one of these mental factors that I would encourage a little bit more ruthlessness. Restlessness and worry. Well, we live in an agitated world. We very often have an agitated mind. We worry about the future, about lunch, about whether we're going to sleep tonight. We can worry about anything. It's, it's a habit of the mind, you know, to worry, to fret to plan, to try and control, to try and guarantee the next moment, to, you know, guarantee what's coming next, what we preventing ourselves from being surprised. Interesting how we think that, rest, that worry is a way of securing our world, whereas as if we can sort of fix everything in place by being anxious about it, when actually what it does is make us more anxious. And really seeing how much restlessness and worry are really interwoven. Um, so we need to calm our thinking. We need to develop more concentration. We need to develop more attention. We need to step out of the cycles of agitated thinking. Because if the mind is agitated, the body will be agitated. There will be no sense of rest, no sense of ease. And again, it's, it's just knowing it. It's, there's some great freedom in knowing mental states as mental states. You know? Rather than I am such a worrier or I am so anxious. Just to know a mental state as a mental state. Ah, restlessness and worry is happening. What does this need? Calmness, the concentration to calm the thinking. Sometimes calming the body too. You know, if you see that your body is being moved through the day by restlessness and worry, it's a good time to slow down a little, to calm, to really see where we're trying to always lean forward, reach where we're not. Doubt. Now doubt, and here we're talking, you know, not about the positive qualities of doubt, but the skeptical doubt. 
that requires, where we kind of require proof before we commit ourselves. (laughs) I require proof that this is going to be good for me before I really commit myself. Doubt is certainly very, very difficult because it expresses itself in ambivalence, in a ambivalence in our intention, in ambivalence in our effort, ambivalence in our energy. Doubt is, is so, so powerful in creating this sort of wavering heart, this unsteady heart. And, you know, in an ideal world, of course, we would have the proof. You know, we'd have this wonderful, happy, calm mind, and then we'd really dedicate ourselves. Unfortunately, in this practice, we don't, it doesn't work that way. It is through the wholeheartedness of dedication that doubt is dispelled because essentially doubt is expelled by experience. Doubt is expelled by, by understanding. Doubt is expelled by remembering. Remembering what is possible. Remembering what we have seen and know within our own, our own hearts and minds. Investigation. Investigation is really important in doubt. You know? What is doubt really talking about, the story of doubt? What is it really telling me? What is it trying to convince? Because doubt has a great mission to convince us of impossibility. So doubt is very much tied in with this sort of deflated sense of, of aspiration, deflated sense of possibility. So it's very important to kind of see how much that sort of you know, that deflated self and self-view and deflated sense of possibility is really at the root of doubt. And doubt is constantly trying to convince us. So sometimes it's so important to just get out of the story of doubt, to come into the felt sense of doubt. What really happens when there's doubt? How does it affect us? How does it affect our intentionality? You know, I often think of the walking meditation like this because if you can think of the, you know, and being on your walking path, you know, how you start with a clear intention to walk, you know, maybe walk for 45 minutes, but to walk up and down. And then you notice in the walking path how these different mental states come to visit, don't they? Oh, suddenly there's a really nice bird, you know, I'd like more of that. I wonder what kind of bird it is, you know, next time I bring in my bird book, you know. Oh, it's too cold. I better go inside. You know, I might catch my death of cold. Here I might get the flu. You know, oh, no, no. You know, I can't do this. This is awful, you know. You can see the restlessness and worry, you know. I wonder if I'll make it to the end. I wonder, you know, I wonder if I, if I get, make it to the end of the period. I wonder if I, somebody might get, get back to the hall. Somebody might be sitting on my sofa, you know. Or, you know, I might not hear the bell. You know, you can hear, feel the restlessness and worry. But you can feel the doubt too, can't you? You get down one one walk one way down your walking path, and the mind comes in and says, "Nah, that's enough. There's nothing going to come of this. You know, I'm really no good at this. You know, I think I'll just quit. You know, I'll go back in. You know, how you just waver, how doubt sabotages intentionality. But you know, in a walking period, how we encourage you not only to sustain through the walking period. Why do we say that? Because we're learning to walk through the mental states." just to walk through the mental states, to know that they're there, but we're just walking through the mental states. It's kind of like they're appearing, they're arising, they're passing, and yet you don't lose your path, do you? You don't lose your path. You just stay steady on the path. 
And I think that's really, a, you know, it's a metaphor that might be helpful in your practice, you know, how to walk with the mental states, to sit with the mental states, but to not be diverted and hijacked by the mental states. This is the work of mindfulness, is to understand mental states and their power, to understand our capacity, what it means not to be governed by, by mental states, and to really, really nurture, to bring into being that potentiality of our own hearts for luminosity, for radiance, for calmness, for serenity. And it's a moment-to-moment intentionality. Thank Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.